to 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your faith in our modern world of today. And this week, we're going to purgatory, and we're going in between heaven and in between earth. For those who are saved, and we've brought in here my good friend, Father John Flater, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me again, George. Always good to be here. Excellent. So we're not going to heaven today. We're not going to hell. We're going to purgatory. <laughs> Explain and, to our listeners, Father, what yes. is purgatory? And, and where we die, we would rather not go to purgatory, although it's the happiest place outside of heaven. But uh, what is purgatory? It's that state of purification of the soul after death for those who die with their soul still imperfectly purified dying in the state of grace, as the catechism puts it, but sealing perfectly purified before entry into heaven. And I always explain it in a simple terms that when you go to heaven, all is holiness, all is purity, all is light. And the soul must be perfectly purified in order to go there. And I always quote the, the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, where it says, strive for peace with all men, and that holiness without which no one will see God. And an analogy that I like to is, if we were invited to an audience with the Pope, let us say, or the Governor General of Australia, or the President of some company, we would go with the best possible clothes, our hair in order, we would be clean in every way. And that's what we need in order to be in the presence of a fairly august human person. But to be in the presence of God Almighty, with all the angels, with Our Lady, all the saints, the soul must have that wedding garment without stain. So if we die without that wedding garment, still with stains on our soul, then it'll be purified in purgatory. And Pope Benedict, in his encyclical Space Salvi, saved by hope, speaks about being seared with the, the fire of God's love. So we're seared by his love and the souls in purgatory appear invariably on fire. That's the pain of sense. And, but also there's the pain of loss of not being with God whom they love dearly and increasingly. That's still a happy place, but it's a place of suffering too. So purgatory as Americans call it, you should be saying purgatory. <laughs> uh, but you've gotten used to the Aussie accent, so now it's purgatory for you. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. So purgatory is not a second chance. Well, that, that's yeah. probably one of the biggest misconceptions yeah. that some people think. And I, I think we were wrongly taught um, by when I was younger that purgatory was the place you go and you decide if you want to go to heaven or you want to go to hell. Um, I don't know who taught me that, but that was clearly erroneous. But So it's not an option. It's not a place where you get to choose. No. 
No, you've made your final choice before you die. And we've seen cases in my book, Dying to Live, there are cases of people who at the very, very last moment of their life chose God where before they hadn't. So, but the choice must be made before we die. But you said it's not a second chance, but in some sense, God in his mercy gives us a second opportunity. This is the way I like to look at it, that he, he God could have said, that we die in the state of grace, but with our soul imperfectly purified. And he could have said, well, look, I'm sorry, you can't come to heaven like that. You're not going to go to hell, but we have a place for you. Let's call it limbo, where you'll be very happy, but you will never see God. And our soul was made for God, as St. Augustine says in the Confessions, you made us for you and our heart is restless until it rests in you. But these souls will never rest fully in God, seeing him face to face. So God gives us a second opportunity after death to be purified of what we didn't purify voluntarily in life. And, and that, as we know, is a state where we can't do anything on our own to hasten our exit from purgatory and our entry into heaven. We depend on people on earth to do that for us. That's why we have all the suffrages, all the masses, the prayers, hours of work, mysteries of the rosary, whatever, offered for the souls in purgatory during this month. So um, we can be helped by others in purgatory. And at least it's a second opportunity to be purified so that we can go to heaven when we die. And it's very, very relevant to be speaking about this topic within this month because it's the month of all souls. I mean, many people are making way for Christmas already, Christmas decorations uh, in logistics. It's the Christmas rush. But really, we're still in the month of all souls. And and we still need to be praying and making up uh, a, a lot of penance for the souls in purgatory and those who've gone before us. So for, for many people who, who so, so what is the relationship uh, um, of purgatory to, to uh, heaven? Is mm. it, is it, does, does one need to, should we see it as us preparing ourselves to get into heaven or, or should we see it as, as a punishment for what's left, the, the minor little sins, if we're getting to heaven? Is it a punishment? Is it a purification? How should we approach and see this, Father? Well, you use two words, starting with P-U, and I would go for purification. It's like the shower in order to be clean, in order to get into, get into heaven. It's, just, it's a shower of, 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 of suffering, undoubtedly. But it's it's the antechamber of heaven should be always focused on heaven, not on punishment and God in his vindictiveness, trying to make us suffer. He's, he wants to purify us in that shower where the water is very hot in order to purify us and clean, clean us up so we're ready for heaven. So, so really, yeah, it really is a, a sort of a service station stop before you get to heaven that's yeah. what it is yeah. and and in what year how was this doctrine developed was the was this understood in the early church very early on or 
did it develop through the early church or the fathers or at what stage where did it come from yes that's our understanding question. of purgatory well I'm, i dare say it comes from the old testament because in the second book of maccabees in that well-known passage where judas the maccabean is the leader of the army that's resisting the greeks trying to impose their pagan customs on the uh, on the israelites and so he leads a band of people who are not going to follow these pagan customs. They become a very well-trained and very successful army. But they've just been involved in a battle, and a number of their soldiers have fallen dead. And when they pick up the bodies, they find some sort of a token of a false god of Jamnia on each one of them. And he understands that it was because of their infidelity, their apostasy, so to speak, of worshiping a false god that they were they were killed and so he takes up a collection amounting to 2000 drachmas i think it is to be sent to jerusalem for a sacrifice to be offered up for their fallen comrades for it is a holy and a wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from their sins so that is revealing a sense of purification of souls forgiveness of sins after death. And that idea in the second book of the Maccabees written around, let us say, the year 150 before Christ. That was the, the idea of the, of, the, of the Jews at that time. And that idea would have been absorbed by the apostles and, of course, by our Lord. And our Lord may have explained a lot more about purgatory and praying for the dead than is recorded in scripture. There's not much in the scripture. A few texts that we could point to that wouldn't prove purgatory, but in some way allude to it. So I would say the tradition of the Jews prior to Christ is already one of praying for the dead. Then in the very early church, the church was already doing that. We see that on monuments, for example, on tombstones, where you might see requiescat in pace, May he rest in peace. That's a prayer to God that this person may rest in peace if he's not already resting in peace. And then, of course, St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine, when she's dying and the two sons are there, Augustine and his brother, and his brother suggests that he should die in, in, um, in North Africa where she came from. And, and she says, bury me wherever you will. All I ask is that you remember me before the altar of God. What she wants is prayers for her after she dies. So the idea of purgatory is there in the early church, in its practice, as well as in its, its doctrine. And uh, do we have any documents or decrees on purgatory? Is, is it a dogma? Oh, yes. No, it's a dogma. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which for us is our handbook of what the church believes. So you go to the section on purgatory. I've got the catechism in, in front of me on my books in case I want you want me to quote something from it. But it's, it's always uh, a teaching of the church from the beginning. And for people who say, oh, that's a Catholic uh, make-believe stuff. I don't believe in that. Okay, you don't have to believe in it. You don't have to believe in hell either. But you might just end up there one day and then you will believe. What I point to 
is apart from the teaching of the church and the practice of the church in praying for the dead is the books and books of accounts of souls in purgatory coming to earth and appearing to somebody on earth. And invariably they appear as if on fire and sometimes they touch, for example, the, 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 uh, the, the linen nightgown of somebody, in one case, a wooden table, and there's a hand mark burned into it. And one finds these artifacts in a little church close to the Vatican in Rome. It's called the Church of the, the Sacred Heart of Suffrage, something like that. Very small church. And in the back of that church, a little known museum of just maybe a dozen or two artifacts of things left by souls in purgatory appearing on earth. But one could read any one of those books. I've read several. And to read these accounts of souls appearing from purgatory is to be convinced, at least unless one is totally incredulous, that purgatory is a reality. And and to me personally, uh, how I started uh, to come back to the Catholic faith was being challenged by a Protestant in a park. And they brought that uh, they brought that up and I had no way of explaining that. And then that's where my quest started to study mm-hmm. the different teachings of the church. So, so it's something which, which is brought up uh, very much by our separated brethren uh, who are Protestants who, who don't really understand where this comes from and how it comes from. Yeah. Uh, so this is the month of the dead. Father, how can we remember those in purgatory? What's what, what's a good way to remember the souls in purgatory? Well, personally, I have about five or six ways every day that are part and parcel of what I do. Like I say Mass every day, and in every Mass, there's a, a prayer for the, the faithful departed. I say some prayers, a priest of Op- all, everybody in Opus Dei, which has a prayer for the deceased. In the rosary, at the end of the rosary, we pray for the souls in purgatory. Then personally, I say what is called a response for all the the, the faithful departed. I do that after saying the breviary every day. But we can remember them when wherever we're doing something that costs us, like we want to do a little penance or to do a job that we've been putting off and we should really do it. Maybe our spouse or someone else is pestering us to do this job, or maybe it's a client if we're a lawyer or an accountant, can you please do do my 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 file, please? And then we say, okay, I'll do it. And I'll offer it up for the souls in purgatory. It gives us an incentive to pray for the souls in purgatory. And one of the things that I often comment is this: that we priests often get envelopes with a, a little donation for masses to be said for the souls in purgatory, and particularly in November. And sometimes the person adds, especially the most abandoned souls. And only this year, reflecting on that, it occurred to me that practically all the souls in purgatory are abandoned. And why do I say that? First of all, because most of the world's population is not Christian. And Catholics make up 1.4 billion out of, let us say, just under 8 billion people. 
um, one seventh more so of, of all souls are Catholic. Protestants generally don't believe in purgatory. They won't pray necessarily for people who have died. It's a natural thing to pray for people who have died, but they probably don't do it either. But even if you took all the Christians who make up maybe just a bit over a quarter of the population, three quarters of all the people who die every day and go to purgatory are not Christian. And probably according to the religious beliefs of the ones they did behind, or maybe they had no religion, there's no belief in praying for the dead. So they're going to be abandoned. Then a lot of Christians are going to be abandoned, the non-Catholics. And then some Catholics are going to be abandoned too. And this for a couple of reasons. One, and this is a sad reason. When I preach on this, I emphasize it strongly. Some people who die are exceptionally good Catholics. And let us say their children are practicing the faith too. And so the priest in the homily or in his words of advice after the person has died might be insinuating, if not stating, your mother is in heaven. We are certain of that. She was so good. She was such a saint. And God bless her and God bless your family for having a mother like that. And meanwhile, he's waxing poetic in the homily. And, and this poor woman, I, I always joke about this. She's lying in the coffin in front of the altar, trying to bang on the lid of the coffin. And of course, she can't do that to say, for heaven's sake, tell them to pray for me, because she's not in heaven yet. And she's on her way to heaven, but she's not there yet. One of the accounts that I often use these days is one that I read in a book called, oh, I can't remember the name of the book, but um, it's it's a, a accounts of, of souls who have died and uh, appearing on earth from purgatory. And it's a man who died in France in, I think it was around 1870. And then he had a, a, a daughter who was a nun in a convent in Belgium. And she received word that her dad had died. And sometime later, her dad began to appear to her. And he did very often until he finally went to heaven. He died in July and he went to heaven on Christmas Eve. And he told her that she and a servant that they had in the house were the only ones praying for him. And he said, the others thought I went to heaven. And this was confirmed by a letter that her siblings wrote to her saying, father died like a saint and he is now in heaven. So they have left their dad stranded in purgatory because they thought he was already in heaven. And I dare say that is fairly common today. I've heard too many accounts of the homilies in funeral masses where the priest is, is in either insinuating or saying that this person is now in heaven. And that can sometimes be exemplified and made clear by what appears on the front of the booklet of the funeral. Yeah. Mass of Thanksgiving for the life of so-and-so. And fine, let us give thanks 
but it is never a mass of thanksgiving. I'll tell you a little anecdote. Years <laughs> ago, when I was going to Canberra every two weeks, I was staying in the home of, of the bishop of the, mil of the military, Bishop Jeffrey Main, really fine the bishop. military ordinary, yeah. yeah. And one day, there was lying on a, on a coffee table in the lounge room, the funeral booklet for an archbishop in one of the capital cities of Australia. And it said on the cover, massive thanksgiving for the life of his grace, so-and-so. I was quite disturbed by that. And I lay in bed thinking, I hope they didn't say a massive thanksgiving. And then I realized that if you go into the Missal, and there's various formulas of masses for the dead, there is not one mass of thanksgiving for the life of anybody in the Missal. They are all masses of prayer for the dead. How do you know what the mass is about? Answer, you look at the collect. The opening yeah. prayer gives you the theme of the Mass. There is not one which says, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of your servant so-and-so who has blessed your church with his service over these many years and is now with you in heaven. <laughs> oh, excuse me. There is not one Mass like that. They are all Masses for the repose of the soul. And even though we want to extol at times the virtues of someone who has died, I do that myself. I will always make clear that we pray now in this Mass, the most powerful prayer that the Church has for the repose of the soul of this person. So there's many people who are abandoned. Most non-Catholics have no one to pray for them, I dare say. There might be some. <coughs> Some Catholics might be abandoned by their by their families, and there might be other Catholics who weren't themselves practicing their faith. Their children aren't practicing the faith. The children are not going to have a funeral mass. They might have a service in which they will remember mom or dad, but there's no mention of prayer. So there could be quite a few Catholics, especially today when so few are practicing their faith, and so few children are growing up in the faith who won't have anyone to pray for them either. So let us who believe in this reality be amongst those who pray very much in this month and always for the souls in purgatory. <laughs> so it's, it's as if we're attempting to canonize people at funerals. And that seems to be a problem, I think. It really seems to be a problem. And there's very few funerals, from my own personal experience, that I've gone to, there's probably about one or two, that have been prayer-centered for praying for that person, praying for their salvation, and living the Lex Orandi, which is so living the Lex Credendi of our faith, our belief of the last four things being reflected in the actions and the rituals of uh, of of the mass and I, I think I, I I think we need to be conscious of this this is a very 
very bad a rabbit hole to go down to 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 really canonize somebody as if you know everyone has a reasonable hope that we're we're saved that's i mean we all want to get to hell we all want to become saints and god is merciful and we will need to save our soul and that's the point of the catholic faith is to save our soul to get us to heaven mm-hmm. but we need to accept god's mercy and we need to follow the path of christ there are conditions so so i think i think these sorts of services send a wrong can send a wrong message uh, uh, against what our we believe so i i think yeah we should keep things Christ-centered and praying for the individual who's passed, um, Father. So, <clears throat> George, let me tell you an anecdote which exemplifies exactly what you were saying. I was attending the funeral of someone who had died, along with a priest friend. And after the funeral ended, this priest said to me, "This is extraordinary. Saint Jose Maria or Monsignor Scriva, because he knew uh, the founder of Opus Dei." Um, died, let's say, 15 years ago, and they haven't even beatified him yet. And this woman died just in the last week, and she's already canonized. <laughs> uh, it's, it's sad. And then, uh, that's why this program is so important, I think, that we, that we spread the message. And let us be selfish about this, too, because if we are amongst those who pray very much for the souls in purgatory, God in his mercy and his justice will make sure that when we die, if we go to purgatory, we will have many people to pray for us. We can be assured of that. Yeah, so there's many ways, and we'll talk about that in the tools, you know, some practical things that we can do to take action uh, with remembering the dead who've gone to purgatory. So. Do you think there's enough discussion about the last things in homilies, in catechetical programs to really alert us, to to kick us back into reality that, well, not everybody gets into heaven, Uh, to to kick us into the reality that we have to fight here on earth. We are the church militant. We must fight uh, sin and temptation day to day to get to heaven, to grow in sanctity, to grow in holiness. Do you think there's enough of an emphasis today in in our means of catechesis that we have in, in all in the life of the church and outside to 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 allow people to understand? You know, there are three place there are three places we can end up. You know, when we die. You know, because I think people need to be aware of this. Well, I can't really answer for anything other than my own sphere of activity because I don't know what goes on in all the programs of catechesis. And we certainly have the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which makes it clear. But I dare say there's not much mention of these things. And I have heard that in catechesis for young children, we don't talk about hell. We don't talk about mortal sin. We don't want to scare them. But this is doing them in injustice not to tell them of the consequences of, of sin and what they do wrong and about the, the, the beautiful heaven that awaits us, but also the hell that is there if we don't repent of our sins and about purgatory. And I dare say purgatory probably is the one that gets the shortest shrift in, in homilies or catechesis. And it is just so important. It is a, 
Well, let me just tell you something else that I quote, and I, I always say to the listener, look, take it or leave it. But in some supposed, let us say, apparitions of Our Lady somewhere on this planet in the last 50 years, one of the visionaries asked Our Lady, when people die these days, where do they go? And she answered in a way that I have questioned my priest friends. I said, just fill in the blanks. And I'll, I'll give you the answer straight away, but I just fill in the blanks with A, B, and C. And they all get it the same, which I do too. When people die these days, Our Lady is supposed to have answered, most go to purgatory. A smaller number go to hell, and only a few go directly to heaven. Now, that is sobering, but it is consoling in another sense because now I've written on the, in the Catholic Weekly on, on whether more people go to hell or to heaven. I'll just give a, a brief summary of that. Based especially on scripture and our Lord's words, strive to enter by the narrow gate for the gate is narrow that leads to life and is wide that leads to perdition. And how narrow it is that leads to life and how few there are that find it. I mean, our Lord says that in different ways in the different gospels, implying that very few go to heaven and a lot of people go to hell. And then in an article from Cardinal Avery Dulles that I found in the, in the magazine First Things, this is now almost 10 years ago, he was showing the history of the belief of people in the church on that question. The church in its, in its formal teachings does not enter into how many go to heaven and hell. It does not enter into that. And, but the belief of theologians, saints and whatnot, up until the 20th century was that there are more people in hell than in heaven, based on our Lord's words. In, in the 20th century, it was Cardinal Ron, Carl um, Rahner, who yeah. launched the idea that it's reasonable to hope that there's nobody in hell. Other people have taken that up. I do not subscribe to that at all. But at least it is consoling, if the, Our Lady's words are correct, that fewer people go to hell than to heaven. Because when people die, most go to purgatory, a smaller number go to hell. All the people going to purgatory are on their way to heaven, plus the ones who go directly to heaven. So that's consoling. But the fact that most go to purgatory is, is sobering, that we too have to be prepared. Now, if you then take the Catholic Church, let us say in this country of Australia today, where something just over 11% go to Mass every every Sunday, or uh, most Sundays at least, then most of the Catholics in this country don't go to Mass regularly on Sundays at all. And they might be amongst those who, when they die, go to purgatory. Maybe they don't believe in purgatory, but whether you believe in it or not, these three realities that you mentioned, of hell, purgatory, and heaven, are realities. And I, as I write in my book, Dying to Live, Purgatory is not just for Catholics. It's for everybody. And people who say, oh, I don't believe in that. Well, they might find themselves there and then they'll believe in it. Better to believe beforehand 
so they don't have to end up in. And if we believe in it beforehand, then we be pre, that we'll be prepared. We will commit fewer sins. We'll do more penance for our sins, more good works. We'll gain more indulgences. And so we can have a good chance. Those of us who are practicing Catholics, struggling to be saints, have, I would say, a pretty good chance of going straight to heaven. We don't take anything for granted, but let's all strive for that. So, I mean, there are schools of thought that emphasize God's mercy and, the, and what you mentioned with Our Lady. Where does our Lord's uh, words fit into this equation when he says it's, hard, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle and, and few are saved? The, the whole concept in the Gospels of few are saved, how do we extrapolate that and integrate it with what Our Lady is saying and everything else? Well, it's a, that is a, a good question because our Lord is truth. I mean, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's God. And if he said that, then he meant it. So how can the church now interpret it to mean, well, there's still the mercy of God, which he speaks about, too, at great length. And so maybe back then there was more catechesis and and people weren't believing it, so they went to hell more than to heaven. I don't know. But I, I can't really answer that with any sort of authority. Why do we interpret something that he said so clearly in a way that would seem to water it down a little bit and make it easier to go to heaven? I think our age certainly needs more emphasis on mercy than on God's justice. And, and one other aspect that's changed quite a bit is the... The retreats given years ago, and there's a particular very fine religious order that was renowned for its its retreat masters preaching on hellfire and you'll be damned. And when you read the catechesis of the Curie of ours, which I've done, he emphasizes a lot of hell. He says, well, then follow your own beliefs and, and go to hell. Um, so he's very strong on this. But I think today we need more emphasis on mercy. So I think Personally, I think we can be justified in taking our, our lady's words, because after all, she is the, the mother, daughter, and spouse of God, too, and speaking to our own age. And I say these are reputed apparitions and reputed words of Our Lady. This isn't something approved by the church. But personally, I subscribe to what she said. And all of my priest friends, when I put it A, B, and C, um, got it right, then I think that's it's reasonable to, to think that today most people go to purgatory, a smaller number go to hell, and only a few go directly to heaven. So in Australia, we have a saying called, better safe than sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, so, I mean, and I did ask you at your launch, your book launch on the final exam in Sydney, isn't it better to take the path uh, or... Uh, the path that says it's it's harder to get to heaven and let's strive harder to to assure ourselves that we get to heaven and not not to be so optimistic obviously understanding and accepting god's mercy but always striving for sanctity and holiness i mean that's i mean that's that's probably the best way i mean you read the lives of many saints they never stopped and said well i'm going to heaven i better kick back and relax I mean, it, that's the sort of mindset that I I would like to subscribe to is the fact that it's 
it, you know, nothing's guaranteed. We better work for it and grow in holiness and, you know, persevere to the end. That sort of mindset. Keeping the fact that, you know, if we live our lives, we love God, how much we love, we can get to heaven. You know, balancing that. But more, uh, but more um, with a heavier weight towards the fact we need to strive towards holiness. We need oh, absolutely. to Absolutely. I totally agree. And yes. And uh, St. Augustine was the one that said, the day you say enough satis in Latin, you're finished. And the day we say, oh, I've, I've done as much as I can. I can just coast now. I'm, I'm 60 and I don't have long to live, maybe another 30, 40 years. And I can coast. When people enter that mindset, the devil can go and start to tempt them too. And I think we know cases of people who live very good lives for quite a while and ended up going right off the rails. Now, we don't know if they went to hell, but that could happen to anybody. And I think I personally, I'm a bit older than you are, and um, I don't take anything for granted. And and one of the things I say, now this you can take it or leave it too, but I say this, that the older we get, the more penance we should be doing, the more we should be striving, because the time that remains before we die is getting shorter, the time that we have lived and the sins we've committed is getting longer. And instead of letting up, let us not take anything for granted. Let us strive harder. Let us struggle more for holiness. Do more with what remains of life because we don't know when it's going to end. It can come like a thief in the night, like we keep reading at this time of the year. And, and then we have a great guarantee of going to heaven, possibly still to purgatory, but at least the devil isn't going to be able to get us as easily if we're striving hard for holiness. And, I mean, that's very well put. And before we go into our practical tools, I just want to speak about your both your books, Dying to Live, and the sequel to Dying to Live, the other book that was recently released, The Final Exam. Now, do you want to give people a summary of what's in both of them and I highly recommend you get a copy of his books, uh, Dying to Live and The Final Exam. But uh, we have a few minutes, Father, to speak about that. Yes, no, thanks for the question, because I, I think the books uh, speak for themselves and they are selling extremely well. There will be an interview with EWTN and Doug Keck on the, the bookmark in January with me on these books, and there'll be a chance to get the message out to a lot of people. But the origin of the two books and the content, the origin of both of them comes from someone other than myself. And I, I keep giving thanks to God for two people who urged me first to write the first, well, one person to write the first one and another one to write the second one. Without their request, these books wouldn't exist. And I think they're doing a lot of good. The first book, Dying to Live, came as a result of a man doing a retreat with me who told me when he came to chat, I'm 79 and getting older, wouldn't it be good if there were a book on life after death for people who don't believe in it? And as soon as he said that, I immediately took to the idea, both because I wasn't aware of any book like that. There's lots of books on the last things written by Catholics or Catholics. Yep. But a book for atheists and pagans and non-believers on life after death to show them 
there is life after death, as far as I was aware, didn't exist. So one reason was that I didn't know of such a book. Secondly, in my articles in the Catholic Weekly over the many years, I'm now into my 19th year writing that weekly column, I had written quite a few on that topic. And so I could start with that material. So I wrote the book in two, two years ago. It came out early last year, and it has sold, as I say, very well. The content is going through various aspects of, of, of reality, and I can just open the book. I happen to have it on the desk in front of me to the table of contents. And Pascal's Wager, for example, pe people can look that up, a, a chapter entitled Placing a Bet, the existence of the soul, a spiritual soul. We all have a spiritual soul. When we die, you can't destroy a spiritual soul. You can't burn it in the, in, a, in, the, uh, in, the, in the fire. You can't destroy it with a hammer. It's spiritual, so it lives on. We long for what is beyond. We long for something after life. It's just human nature to do that. There's a chapter on the existence of God with arguments from the universe, especially from the 20th century findings of science, to show there has to be a God in just the origin of the universe, the harmony of the universe, the origin of life, and so on. Some of these arguments have convinced atheists. The chapter on near-death experiences is really important. Thousands and thousands of people of all religions, all ages, all beliefs, have had a near-death experience in which they generally experienced a cardiac arrest in which their soul left the body, sometimes hovered above it, watching the resuscitation, or went through a tunnel to a judgment, went to heaven, some to hell, and purgatory too. They are very convincing. And between all of them, they speak about the four last things. Death, judgment, well, there's five, really. Death, judgment, hell, purgatory, and heaven. And then people have come back from the dead. Our Lady has come back from the dead. So arguments like that. So that's the contents of the book. And then we go to show the, the, the Christian view, that is to say, the Catholic view on, on the last things. The other book, the final exam, came at the suggestion of another friend. He had read the first one. He was really happy with it. He was delighted and he bought extra copies for his friends. And he wrote me one day thanking me for the book. And he said, please write another book in this same style. The style of Dying to Live and the final exam is very different from my other books, which is formal English. This is informal, conversational, talking to the reader. Sometimes a sentence might have one word or just a phrase without a verb. And you see lots of writing like this, and I, I like it. So this is a very easygoing conversational style. So this man liked the style, write another book in the same style. I thanked him for the suggestion and had no intention whatsoever of writing another book. I had written the first one the year before, and I don't have time to write books. I mean, I say that, and then... But as I write in the beginning, forward to, to the final exam, it just goes to show that there's always time for something you really want to do. And last year, with some health issues, that gave me more time. And the real desire to, to 
take up that suggestion, having prayed about it one day. I was just praying in the chapel about the suggestion. And I thought that the thought process went like this. Well, if there's a topic perhaps related to the first one about life after death, for which I've already written quite a bit, it might be worth thinking about. And then God obviously gave me an answer. The final chapter of Dying to Live is entitled, What Must I Do? So the reader has come through reading the book and is now in the final chapter, still with us, hasn't thrown the book in the rubbish, and is asking, okay, I believe in life after death. What must I do to be saved? And so there's a few suggestions. The, the idea that I had in that, that prayer was elaborate on that final chapter. And what I came up with, because I had already written a whole book of instructions in the Catholic faith entitled Journey into Truth, which has its DVDs as well, which have been shown on EWTN. And I've already written that whole book. Chapter, or the third part of that, like the third part of the catechism, is on moral life in Christ. So all I needed to do was to take that material and reword it. So I wasn't basing anything of morality on the Bible, but rather all on common sense and the natural law. Now, this was an exercise in can you do this? Can you justify all the church's teachings, not only the basic Ten Commandments, but the finer points of each one of them, like the use of contraception, like um, homosexual acts, like euthanasia, and so on, from the point of view of the natural law? And of course, you can, just as Paul VI did in writing Umani Vitae in 1968, and he kept harking back the teaching on contraception to the natural law. So I found it reasonably easy. So the book took shape following the outline of the third part of the catechism and my part of my book, uh, Journey into Truth. And I, I started writing it, by the way, last year, that is to say 2022, on the 1st of July, which is the first day of the last six months of the year. And I set myself the target of finishing that book by the 31st of December. I've got six months to write this book. Now, I had to take advantage of every available opportunity to write something, but I surprised myself. I was giving a retreat to the Carmelite nuns in Launceston in Tasmania, and I knew that was in October, and I knew that that I would be able to finish writing the first draft while I was there, which I did. So in four months, I had finished the first draft, a couple more months of refining it and sending it out to other people. And, and by, the, by the end of the year, it was in the hands of the publisher and it came out early in 2023. So I think it's, it's doing a lot of good as well. And that one just goes through the Catholic belief of general moral issues like the role of conscience, the different types of laws, the role of the emotions. There's a whole chapter on suffering because on how we take suffering can depend, we speed our way into heaven or we may suffer longer in purgatory or even go to hell, cursing God for allowing us to suffer. And then it goes through the Ten Commandments one by one, basing everything on the natural law. And then the final chapter in that book is entitled 
the same as the book itself, the final exam, and what can we expect in the judgment itself? And one of the key ideas there is based on the parable of the talents, which we had in, in Mass just recent on Sunday, that we're all going to be judged differently. Even though we might be the same age when we died, some have been given more talents than others. Someone like me, a priest, and a priest of at that, has had far more formation in theology and philosophy, formation received in Opus Dei, than the average person and even the average priest. So I, God has given me more talents. God can ask much more from me than he can ask from many other people. So I always ask people to pray for me when I die. Don't say, oh, I want a good priest. He went to heaven. We're sure of that. Pray for me because the exactly, exactly. is a lot bigger than a lot. Excellent. Of That's absolutely amazing. Let's go into three practical tools. What can people do to remember those in purgatory, those who've gone before us? What can they do to take action? Especially as we wrap up this month of November. It's going by very quick. So let's take the opportunity, not just in November, to really emphasize it in November, but to carry it through the rest of the year. What can we do, Father? What are some three practical tools okay, to now, take action? You're, you're, I know you're always going to ask me that question, and I, I, I haven't in, yet, and the many times I've been with you, even thought beforehand on the practical tools, so I'm going to have to think off the cuff. But I, as you were asking the question, <laughs> the first thought that occurred to me is, we all know people who have died, personal friends and relatives, or we're reading about them in the newspapers on a daily basis. And now people are dying in Gaza, they're dying in the Ukraine, and they're dying in airplane crashes and in, in so many different ways that we hear about in the news practically on a daily basis. When we hear that piece of news, we think, well, there's another soul that has left this life to go into eternity. Where have those people gone? We don't know. Let us pray for them. No matter how evil we think they might have been, God can save anyone at the end. So pray when you hear someone has died, pray for their souls, no matter whether they were Christians or Catholics or Buddhists or Hindus or atheists or terrorists in a, in a suicide bombing. We don't know. Pray, pray for them. Then, remembering this reminder, the, the, the death of people will remind us of these three main states of hell, purgatory, and heaven. So when we hear that someone has died, we can be reminded of purgatory and then pray for them again, but also think, well, I'm going to die one day. I don't know when or how. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be in 20 or 40 or 60 years. But what am I doing to prepare for purgatory myself? Remembering the souls in purgatory helps me to change my life so that I commit fewer sins. If I'm a Catholic or have confession available, and the Orthodox generally do, some Protestants do too, go to confession or at least confess your sins to God do more penance is another tool, if you like, a separate one. Avoid yep, more penance. Do more penance, do more good works, all of our good works, all of our prayers, all of our acts of charity, all of the indulgences we gain can, can help to make up for the temporal punishment 
and the other effects of sin. So we might be able to go straight to heaven when we die. And then I think when we're when we're in need of doing something that we find difficult because someone has asked us to do this difficult job or our conscience is prodding us on a Friday or in Advent, which is coming up, which is indeed a season of penance as well of hope and expectation, then let us let us take advantage of these days, these opportunities, these promptings of our conscience to, to do that difficult task, whether it be not have that extra beer, not have that extra helping of dessert, not eat so much between meals, follow our diet, which we don't like, but we need to lose weight or it's good for our health, go for that run and do that exercise, whatever we find difficult, then let, let's do that. That's a practical tool. Do that and, and just do it in the grace of God, offer it to God. And we don't have to remember to do it for the to make up for our sins. God will take that into account. All of the good deeds we do, he'll take that into account to wipe out some or all of the temporal punishment and other effects of sin. So I think when people die, remembering to pray for them, whoever they are, then remembering then at that stage, there is a purgatory and let us let us pray then for the souls in purgatory, do those difficult jobs. And then more or less a corollary of that, do what we can to avoid purgatory ourselves by doing more good works and, and avoiding sins. A great thing uh, people can take action with is to offer up tasks that work or in their day-to-day life and doing it well and then offering it up for the souls in purgatory. So if you have a hard task at work coming up tomorrow or a report or you have to meet with somebody, you can offer each stage of your day up for uh, the souls in purgatory or a particular person, I think. That's a a great way to connect and pray for them. And uh, little things that can help the souls in purgatory. But thank you very much, Father, for being with me here today on the show. Uh, as we uh, as we uh, end, uh, we go towards the end of the month of all the All Souls. Uh, but thank you for being with me. Pleasure, George, always. And I'm willing to come back anytime. God bless you. And, and I want to remind Thank people you. that now Father John Flader has his meditations live on Voice of Charity, 17.01 a.m. So 17.01 a.m., Voice of Charity Australia, uh, every single Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. That is every single Wednesday at 4.30 p.m. You can listen to Father John Flader's spiritual meditations here on radio every single Wednesday at 4.30 p.m., Australian Eastern Standard Time. So thank you for tuning in to Catholic Toolbox. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to go to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. That is thecatholictoolboxshow.com to subscribe to the weekly podcast alert. Thank you for tuning into the show. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith, to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says.
join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.